Raise up hands here. Who has Old Faithful, the geyser in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, who has actually seen Old Faithful before? A good percentage of the room. You guys made it all the way to Wyoming. Wow, okay. Uh, my grandparents live in Wyoming. They live in Farson, population 318 as of the 2010 census. So a big booming town of, uh, of Farson. And they just have, they have a lot of acreage, a lot of alfalfa hay. They have a ranch out there. And uh, we'd go out and see them. It was a long drive from Kentucky with a big family. And so we'd go see them occasionally, maybe once every seven or eight years. They'd come and see us more often. But we would occasionally go out there, and we did. I was probably 7th or 8th grade, and we went to Yellowstone National Park. And there's lots of geysers. That's just kind of a hotbed for geysers there all inside of Yellowstone. But Old Faithful is the most famous geyser in all of the world, they say, because of its consistency that it erupts 20 times a day. Every, you can't necessarily set your clock by. It's every 60 minutes to maybe 90 minutes-ish. But Old Faithful will, uh, the, the lava, of course, that's heating the hot spring right there, and they get enough pressure, and it erupts in 100 or so feet tall and all the steam and I don't know how many thousands and thousands of gallons of water and for a minute or two this geyser will just erupt with this boiling hot water and it's it's pretty cool to see after you're done you're like okay I've seen that I don't really need to see it again but it's pretty it's pretty cool to see this uh, geyser that is just consistent and just uh, acts really on timeliness and just is there it's old faithful the name sums it up very well and here in Daniel 5, it's going to take us a few verses to get to Old Faithful, but we find this man, Daniel, who is now in his uh, 60s and has just been steady and serving the Lord. So I want us to just kind of walk through this passage piece by piece and understand <clears throat> what's happening here and really set the stage even for, uh, for next Sunday. So first, we're going to see this in the first couple of verses. We're going to see the wickedness at the great feast. So we're going to see this feast that takes place with King uh, Belshazzar, and, and frankly, it's vile. It's, it's a wicked feast. So let's look in verse number one. The Bible says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords. And now let's just stop there for a moment. I don't want today to be a history class. I want it to be a sermon, but it is important for us to understand a little bit of the background and a little bit of the history of this. So uh, Belshazzar is now the king. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is not the king. If I refer to Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar, forgive me. I've just been preaching about Nebuchadnezzar for so many uh, weeks and months now and typing his name in my notes. So that may happen a time or two today. But Belshazzar is now the king. There's 23 years that have separated King Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And in the meantime, Six and a half years right after Nebuchadnezzar ruled, there was a really big time of unrest inside of the Babylonian kingdom. Babylon burned through three different kings very quickly in about six and a half years right after Nebuchadnezzar. First was the king Evil Merodach, and I'm not calling him evil, that's actually part of his name, Evil Merodach. And he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and he reigned for two years until he was assassinated by uh, what we believe to be his brother-in-law, Neraglisser, who sounds like a medication. But Neraglisser assassinates Evil Merodach, and he reigns for four years until he dies. And his son, and why you would name your child this, I do not know, but he named him Labaro Sorkod. So Labaro Sorkod, who was a child, a, a elementary age child, takes the kingdom and he reigns for nine months until a plot is conceived and he's actually beaten to death and assassinated as a kid king. 
And these conspirators decide to take a man named Nabonidus and appoint Nabonidus as king. Now, Nabonidus is not in the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar, so he marries. We're not sure exactly, but it's either Nebuchadnezzar's widow or Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Most people think it's Nebuchadnezzar's widow. So Nabonidus kind of marries into the kingly lineage and, and marries this woman. And now he's king for 17 years. And historians have looked at Daniel for a number of years, actually for centuries, and they said that you could not trust Daniel because uh, we have this piece of history and this piece of history and this piece of history that tells us Nabonidus was the king when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. And Daniel 5 is going to be an account. This is the last night of Belshazzar's rule. By the end of the chapter, in one night, the Medes and the Persians are going to take over. They're going to conquer Babylon, and Babylon's no more. The head of gold has come tumbling down, and now it's going to be the chest and arms of silver with the Medes of Persians. But in, in history has looked at this, and they for a long time said, you can't trust your Bible. We have so many documents that verify, Babylonian documents, Persian documents that verify that Nabonidus was the king. Belshazzar wasn't the king. We don't have Belshazzar. We don't know Belshazzar. Who is this guy? You can't trust him. If you can't trust Daniel chapter 5, then you certainly can't trust Daniel chapter 4. And if you can't trust those, then you can't trust the book of Daniel. And if you can't trust the book of Daniel, then why can you trust your Bible at all, right? And they've looked and said, look, the Bible's historically inaccurate. You can't trust this. Don't anchor yourself to it. It's wrong. We don't know Belshazzar until about 1985. In 1985, archaeologists discovered what's now known as the Nabonidus Cylinder. The Nabonidus Cylinder talks about Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, between that and now we have actually a lot of documents that talk about Belshazzar. And we have a pretty clear picture of who this guy was. He was the, king, uh, the son of Nabonidus. And history has also now told us, archaeology has told us, that Nabonidus for his 17 years spent the great majority of it away from the kingdom. He would be engaged in the military conquest. He would be engaged in hunting. He actually set up a capital city and another city. And Nabonidus did not spend much time in Babylon proper. And he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to be his co-regent, to reign with him, to rule with him, to run the day-to-day -day affairs of the city of Babylon. So this man here who history has told us, you know, you can't trust the Bible. Frankly, history caught up with the Bible, and now we know the Bible is accurate. And you can, you can apply that to so much of the Bible that when you come to where it speaks on science, when it comes and speaks on history, when it talks about archaeology or the heavens or whatever it may be, the Bible's accurate. Sometimes science catches up to it, and it takes them a little while to get there. Sometimes it takes history a little while to catch up to the Bible. But nevertheless, for millennia, the Bible, the biblical record has been proven true time and time and time and time again. And you can trust this book and what it says. And Daniel is given an accurate account of here's this man, Belshazzar, who's a co-ruler with his father, who is ruling and is king of Babylon, and he has this feast to a thousand of his lords. Now, in ancient perspective, this is actually a relatively small feast. Uh, the Persians were known, they said that their kings would dine daily with 15,000 guests and that they would, that they would slaughter a thousand different animals, horses and ostriches and donkeys and all these different types of animals and camels. So this is actually a relatively small feast compared to some kings, but he's having a party. Now, we do one more piece of history. We have to understand why having a party at this point in time is crazy. So the Persians and the Medes are devouring land. Cyrus is eating up the known world. And Nabonidus takes a, an army about 50 miles south of Babylon proper, and they have this battle, and they lose. 
Babylon loses. Nabonidus is captured by Cyrus and by the Persians. And Babylon has pretty much lost all of its territory, all of its land, except for the city of Babylon proper. And it's in this city now that three months ago Nabonidus is defeated, and now the Persian army has surrounded the city, and they're besieging the city, and they are in a time of war. No one's going in or out. And it's in this setting that Belshazzar decides to have a party. I have lost the entire kingdom except for my city. I'm surrounded by the army, and a massive army it was, and now I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to have a feast. I'm going to have a good old time with, with my lords, and we're going to get drunk, and we're going to uh, we're going to party it up. Now, he may have had decent reason to be comfortable. Babylon was the most entrenched, fortified city of the ancient world. Babylon is about 15 miles square, so it's, it's a big city. Herodotus writes of, of this city, and some say that he's exaggerating a little bit. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he was a historian who was. And he says that the city of Babylon had walls that were 87 feet thick. So that's roughly, if you took the first four sections here, that's, that's a thick wall. You're not burrowing through that. You're not, you're not knocking that bad boy down. 87 feet thick, and he says that they were 350 feet high. Now, even if he is exaggerating, it's only 100 feet high. I don't care. That's a monstrosity of a wall with gates. And then what they did is they built a moat and filled it with water and built another wall on the other side of the moat. So you have ginormous wall with towers. Then you have a moat. Then you have another wall inside of this ginormous city. And they probably have enough food to last a siege for a decade or more. They're feeling pretty comfortable. We've lost everything, but it doesn't matter. We have this city. No one's coming in or out. No one is going to take us, and, and we can live life. We can, it doesn't matter if the enemy's at the gate. We can, we can have a good time. There's a historical document called the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is actually a Persian document, and it writes about Nabonidus and uh, Cyrus and the battles that they have, and it says that after they conquer Nabonidus and they're now surrounding Babylon, which is the setting of Daniel 5, that here is what the Babylonian soldier said from atop the wall to the army of the Persians. This is interesting to me. So mounting upon the battlements that crowned their walls, the Nabonidus Chronicle tells us, they insulted and jeered at Darius and his mighty host. Even one shouted to them and said, why do you sit there, Persians? Why, do you, why don't you go back to your homes? Till mules fall, you will not take our city. Now we would say it till pigs fly today. That's how we would say it. Till mules fall, I'm, I'm not naturally super country. I didn't know what that meant. I had to look it up. So apparently, and this was news to me, mules are the breed of a horse and a donkey. And mules, without getting too scientific, they have an odd number of chromosomes and not an even number of chromosomes, and they can't birth. They can't prolong uh, their, their seed. They can't give birth to any more mules. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, till pigs fly, you're never getting in our city. We're confident. You can sit out there all you want. Why don't you just go home? Why don't you just hang it up? Because we are confident. We are comfortable. Here we are. Verse number two. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels, which were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods, the god of gold and silver, 
and brass and iron and wood and stone. So he says, why don't we, we're having a good old time, we're having a party, why don't we go get the temple vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar took away? Why don't we get those sacred vessels? Why don't we get the holy vessels for their God? And why don't we have a party with those? Now, I don't think this was because they were out of cups. I think that they wanted, he was saying, we're going to worship our gods. We're going to demonstrate how big our gods are, gold and silver and wood and stone. We're going to demonstrate how big they are because we took these, these temple vessels from the, gods of, or the god of uh, Judah. We're going to now worship them. And he is committing an act of sacrilege. He is taking something sacred, holy, that belongs to God Jehovah, and he's going to defile it. He's going to desecrate it. He's going to have his party with this. And what we'll find is that it really ticks God off. This really makes him mad that he is being idolatrous and that he's going to worship his gods with the holy vessels from his temple and that he's going to be so sacrilegious in this. The Bible says that Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, and the Bible says that he drank wine before the thousand. That's important because in our day and age, when we host a party, we have someone over to our house, we're with them. We're sitting with them. We're talking with them. We're having a good time. But in the ancient times, that was rare. King normally sat on a platform up above everybody and just kind of emceed the night, made sure that the atmosphere was good, made sure there was enough food, made sure there was enough drink. He normally wasn't in the debauchery himself. He normally wasn't partying himself. But Belshazzar, the Bible is clear, that he is in the muck. He is partying. He is having a good old time. He is, he's living his life as he wants to, and he is defiling God. He's defiling the vessels. And this is a night of sensuality with the wives and the concubines. This is a night of sacrilege. This is a night of sheer stupidity that you have, you have the enemy at your gate, and here you are partying. Now, Belshazzar is not unique, and he does not stand in contrast to our day and age. The things that Belshazzar is engaging in, the Old Testament talks about, the New Testament talks about, and are relevant to us today. Belshazzar is getting drunk. We have a society that loves to get drunk. Frankly, we have people that love to drink. They love to party. They love to paint the town red. Many of your coworkers, I'm sure you're aware of this. This is, this is commonplace for our society to engage in this. And the Bible is abundantly clear that being drunk and partying in this fashion is wrong, is sin, is condemned in all of the Bible, that it is, it is not okay for you to go get drunk and have a party like this. So this, this is not unique to, to Babylon. This is not unique to their day and age. We, we would see this ourselves. Idolatry is being practiced. Now, we don't, we don't worship gold and silver and, and stones in that way and say that those are gods, but because we're modern, you know, we're smarter than that. We're, we've progressed far enough, our culture. We worship other things. We worship our own ideologies. We, are, we worship ourselves, probably even worse. We, we put ourselves on our own pedestal. No one has authority over me. I do what I want. I say what I want. I'm autonomous. I don't want the authority of the Bible. I don't want the authority of God. I don't want the teenagers, the authority of my parents. I don't want the authority. I hate that my boss tells me what to do. I want to be independent. I want to be autonomous. I want to have my own way. I want to have my liberty. I want to have my freedom. And, and we engage in a form of idolatry, and a form of it is idolatry, when we exalt ourselves above God, just as Belshazzar is doing. He's putting himself above Jehovah God. And we are, if we think that we don't do that and we escape from that, then we're crazy. There are many times in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, that, that we don't put God on the throne of our hearts. 
and he doesn't rule and he doesn't reign and he doesn't have control of us and he isn't truly the one who we're worshiping and the one who we say is king and we are engaging in a form of idolatry just as Belshazzar is and furthermore the Bible is clear that the temple and the vessels are no longer in golden cups. The temple is no longer in a building. The Bible is clear in Corinthians and other places that what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. That you're bought with a price. The Bible says now God lives in you and you are holy and you are supposed to be special. You are supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to take care of your body and not defile it and treat it as if God has residence inside of your life. And if, and if we really step back and ask ourselves to, to desecrate the temple of God, sometimes we do. If to be idolatrous, some, not all the time, do we worship God and have him on the throne of our hearts? Being drunk, that's, that's common in our day and age. These sins are prevalent to us. And in this debauchery that is being engaged in, in in Daniel chapter 5 is true for us today. And and to think that we can escape it is crazy. I will say this as, as just a side note. <clears throat> the important part of this is that Belshazzar is exalting himself above God and he's worshiping something other than God. We do sometimes do that, but even in a, in a stricter sense, there are maybe sometimes religions or cults, we would call them, that refuse to worship God, who we would say is Jesus. I, when I uh, lived in California, I would have more of this than I do now. I don't think I've, since I've lived here, I don't think I've had a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or something knock on my door since I've, since I've been here. But in California, it's just kind of a hodgepodge. There's all kinds of different churches and, and people, and it's, it's very diverse. And about every, I don't know, two, three months, one of them would, walk, would knock on our door. And I would never engage in a super detailed conversation and let's sit down and talk for hours on it. And I always just ask them one question, one simple question. Do you worship Jesus? The end. Do you worship Jesus? And they would, you know, well, we think Jesus, he was a good man, or he was, he was uh, you know, the, the begotten, and he was this, or he was that. No, no. Do you worship him? The Bible, the New Testament, is filled with people who worship Jesus, who fall down, and they, and they offer their sacrifices on his feet, and they weep, and they, and they wash his feet with their hair, and they worship him. The Revelation tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And do you worship Jesus? That's the bottom line, is in our lives, do we worship Jesus? Is he numero uno? Is he number one? Is he sitting on the throne of our hearts? Have we yielded our lives to him? Is he in his proper place? And I never had one of them tell me that they worship Jesus because, of course, they don't. They don't worship Jesus. They don't uh, treat him how the New Testament treats him, as God himself. But we have, even here in Daniel 5, a man in, in idolatry, in sensuality, in sacrilege, who is exalting himself against God. And here's what we'll find. God is not pleased with this. I want us to see, secondly, the second part of this passage, the writing on the plaster wall. So look in verse number 5. They have this party, and they're living in frivolity, and they're having a good old time. Verse number five. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So here's something that is supernatural. Now we reference this in our culture, the handwriting on the wall, right? I got fired, but you know, I'm not surprised. I saw the writing on the wall. That young person was arrested for drugs, but you know, his parents should have seen the writing on the wall. We use this. 
We reference Daniel 5, verse 5 uh, often. People that don't even know Daniel 5, verse 5 reference that, and they don't know what they're referring to. But here is something that's supernatural, and God makes it really clear that he wants Belshazzar to see this. He says, I wrote it over against the plaster, the most visible place, where the candlestick is, where it's all lit up. I, I did it there. What God is saying is, I put on a PowerPoint show for Belshazzar. I, I did something that I wanted to be sure that he saw this. This was supernatural. This was the hand of God. I want to be sure he saw this. Verse number six, he did see it. We find in verse number six that uh, a little bit of a sobering experience. Then the king's countenance was changed. I love this verse. It was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. I love the way that's phrased. So he's partying it up, getting drunk. And I'm told that shock can produce a form of sobriety. I've never been drunk, so I don't know. I've never experienced it. But I'm told that a shock to the system and adrenaline can sober you up real fast. And he is all of a sudden scared. His countenance has changed. There's fear. There's terror that grips him. The Bible says that his thoughts trouble him, and all of a sudden his mind is really, if you've ever been scared, your mind runs a mile a minute, and it's all jumbled up, and it's going all over the place. The Bible says this, this is my favorite part, that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. So joints of his loose means one of two things. Either it means, we're not exactly sure, either it means that he just kind of went limp, or it means, and I think this is the most appropriate, that uh, he needed a diaper. <laughs> the joints of his loins are loose, and the Bible says his knees smite one against another. His knees are knocking. My man is scared. Like he's real scared. He's sobered up real fast. And this supernatural hand of God, this is not just like, ah, oh, what's that riding over there, guys? Am I drunk and just imagining something? No. He is scared out of his mind at what just happened and what he just, he just saw the hand of God. I dare say that we would be scared if we saw the hand of God. That's what it's common in the Bible when people experience God or when they see an angel. People think, you know, angels are these cute little chubby little things. Look in the Bible when an angel shows up. You know what? Every single time, they're scared. Every single time, the, the, the angel starts with be not afraid because they're scared out of their mind. And the hand of God comes and Belshazzar is no different. He is scared to death. Look in verse number 7. Now he's going to summon all these people together. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was king Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. He says, guys, and it says in, in verse number seven, he cries aloud, hey, get everybody, get them in here real fast. And he, he stops the party and stops the music and says, get these people in here. What does this mean? And, and they come in and he says, look, I'm going to give you scarlet. I'm going to give you a chain of gold. And then he says, which is an indication that Daniel was so accurate all along, I'm going to make you the third ruler. That, which is an indication that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were co-ruling all along. Daniel knew this. And, and Belshazzar, as the de facto monarch, says, I'm going to promote you to the highest position I possibly can. No more co-ruling. We're going to have tri-unity here. It's going to be three of us. I'll, I'll promote you to king, basically, along with me and Nabonidus. If you can tell me what this means. And the Bible says that they can't. Which, you know, surprise, surprise. 
By now we've seen several different dreams and interpretations in Daniel. And every single time what happens? The king gets scared. The magicians and astrologers come in. They're like, king, sorry, can't do it, man. Every single time this is what happens. So we shouldn't be surprised that this happens again. And the Bible says that then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. You thought he was scared before? You thought he was troubled? You thought he was pale before this? Wait until you see where he is now. Now that people can't give him any comfort, can't tell him what's happening. I don't know if you've ever been really, really scared in your life. There are a couple moments I've experienced with a German shepherd that really, really scared me. But the most scared I've ever been in my life, it was goofy, but I was scared to death. I was probably, I don't know, 24, 25. I'm a, a youth pastor in California. And we had this week of camp. And camp was like the event for the church all year long. It was it was just a monstrosity to run and to organize and put on. And we had 900 to 1,000 people that would come for one week to, to camp. And it was just, it was crazy. Part of camp and part of my responsibilities were to shoot skit videos for the teenagers that would be goofy and funny and that they would laugh in. And honestly, I hated it. I, I don't ever want to be in a skit the rest of my life. If that happens, then I'm good. That would be fantastic because I hated it. But it was my job, so I did it. So we'd shoot these skits and we'd be goofy, but then it was my job to edit the video. And if you've ever done video editing, which I know most of you probably have not, I had not. I had just had to do it. And I wander my way through it. It takes forever. To, to produce a three-minute video takes hours and hours and hours. And if you're producing, you know, eight or nine three-minute videos, it's just, it takes forever to do. So it is the day before camp. And I would, I would organize camp all the way up until the day of camp, and then I would switch gears. I would turn it over, and then I would go into youth pastor mode, and I would take 75 or 80 teenagers and be their counselor for the week, and everyone else would, would run it. So it's the day before camp, and I have to edit these videos, and I know I have to pull an all-nighter. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to have to stay up all night long to edit these videos. And if you ever take 75 or 80 teenagers to camp for a week, Staying up all night the day before is not the way to go. Can I just say that? I don't recommend that. You're not going to get any sleep the entire week anyway. And by the end of the week, you're going to be like an egg about to crack. And so don't do it. But I had to. So I'm doing this. And I asked one of our teenagers who was a senior in high school, Grady, who was six foot six, a big old boy. And he, uh, I said, Grady, do you want to you stay with me? You want to you know, help me keep me awake tonight? I need your help. So he talked to his parents and said, yeah, I'll stay up with you. So it's about 4 a.m., and I, I take a break, and I walk. The room is actually similar to this. The room where I was editing video, our computer lab, was off of our gymnasium. So it was right off the gymnasium. The restrooms were kind of over here. And uh, we would set up on Sundays our gymnasium with uh, green carpet, like, uh, like grass, like AstroTurf. And then we'd put tents in the gym. And the kids would go have Sunday school in there. It would be their little kid. We called it kids camp. And there were 20 tents. And there were first grade boys and second grade boys. And they could hold about 20 each. And they loved it. It was a great time. Sunday school. It was a good use of space. It was fantastic. So I'm walking on this AstroTurf, weaving my way through these tents at 4 a.m. in the morning. It's pitch black. Trying to find my way with my, you know, phone to the bathroom. I get done. And I'm walking back like a zombie to the, to the computer lab. And out from one of these stupid tents... Pops Grady Norton, six foot six, screaming at the top of his lungs at me. And I, I'm telling you, I was so, I've never been that scared in my life. I was so utterly scared and jolted and frazzled by him jumping out at 4 a.m. in the morning to scare me that 
I didn't know what to do. It was so, I was so taken back. And then it literally instantaneously like a flip switch and it just turned into rage. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. We got so scared that she turned into rage. I, just, I wanted to punch him. I wanted to beat him up. I just, I was scared out of my mind. And this is, this is Belshazzar. He sees this handwriting. He is scared to death. He, then no one can interpret it and he's troubled further and he's in a bad spot right now. He's in the spot that Psalm 2 describes to us. Psalm 2 says this about the, the kings of the earth and what they will do. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah. And the Bible says, God says about himself, that God Jehovah sitteth in the heavens and will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then he will speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I firmly believe that God is sitting in heaven just laughing at Belshazzar, saying, you thought that you would be sacrilegious, you would exalt yourself against me, you would drink from my temple vessels and put wine in there and get drunk and have your party with this. Wait and see what I do to you, buddy. I'm, I'm going to scramble you up. You're not going to know what hits you. And he does. And, and, the, and the writing on the wall is potent in Belshazzar's life. Lastly, and most importantly, we'll see this, the witness of the aging prophet. So here comes Old Faithful. Verse number, uh, verse number 10. Now the queen, to be clear, the queen is not his wife. The queen is likely his mother who's married to Nabonidus. So she's kind of queen mother. And she's going to treat him like a kid, honestly. She's going to treat him like queen mother. And you can tell it in her tone here. The queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. So she barges in, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. So look, don't, why are you so perplexed? Why are you so troubled? Stop. And, and why does she give him this advice? Because, verse 11, there is a man in thy kingdom, in whom the spirit of the, is the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And then this is where she kind of gets motherly with him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father. The king, I say, thy father, master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, he, he put him over them. For as much, verse 12, as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpretation of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts. Dissolving of doubts literally means like he's untying knots. He's uncomplicating things. Dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called in, and he will show the interpretation. So she says, look, remember, there's this guy, Daniel. Remember him? I, I don't remember him. I recommend him. We should get him in here. You don't have to be troubled. We can, we can bring him in. He knows what to do. He has wisdom. God has spoken to him. God's used him. He has dissolved these doubts before. He has the wisdom that we need in this scenario. So, so let's, I recommend him. Let's get him in here. Verse number 13, Daniel's requested. Then was Daniel brought in before the king. And the king spake and said to Daniel, Art thou that Daniel which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I've even heard of thee. That the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, and that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom." So here comes 
this man Daniel, old faithful, who is in retirement of sorts, forgotten, on the shelf, not utilized any longer. Now, Daniel is not watching TV and golfing all day. Uh, The Bible is clear that uh, chapter 7 of Daniel, which is a prophecy, and chapter 8 of Daniel, Daniel says, these came to me during this time frame. But Daniel's still talking with God. Daniel's still walking with God. Daniel's still hearing from God. Daniel's still being faithful. You'll find in chapter 6, which is a year after this, that the Medes and the Persians take over, and the Medes and the Persians immediately recognize, that guy Daniel, he prays three times a day. And that's how they trap him and how the lion's den takes place. He's steady. He's, He's on it. He's praying. He's talking. He's He's walking with the Lord. He's spiritual. He's mature. So here's this man that despite him being set on the shelf to a degree, despite him being forgotten to a degree and and getting older and getting up in years, he is still faithful. He is still serving. And and they call him in. And he's still, you can tell he has a relationship with God because at the end of the chapter, he's going to tell them what this means. He's going to break it down. And, And in this time of crisis where Daniel's forgotten, Daniel is snubbed to a degree. Daniel is pushed to the side. When crisis hits and the frivolity ceases and the party stops and the music stops and people need to hear some counsel and they need some wisdom and they need some discernment and they need someone to speak into their lives, who do they turn to? The wise man who's been at it. The man who's been spiritual. The man who's been faithful. And isn't that true even for us? That our coworkers or our neighbors or our family or whoever it is in our life that, that we try to be a witness and we try to be salt and we try to be light and we try to rub off on them and we try to help them and, and be a spiritual influence in their life, but they resist it and they want nothing to do with us and they kind of shove us to the side and they, and they say away with us or they, they don't want Christianity. Mark it. When the times of crisis happen and when they are in need and they need some guidance and they need some direction and they need help and their loved one passes away, or they are unhealthy or they get cancer or their finances start to dissipate and be in shambles, who do they turn to? Nine times out of ten, they go to that spiritual influence who has it together, who walks with God, who who they see as the aged, older, mature, wise Christian. They go to that person and say, help. They say, can you can you help me? Can you give me some counsel? Can you I don't know? I mean, I thought I was doing right, but now I'm 16 years in with my kids and it's a mess. I don't know what I did wrong. They turn to you. That when you're faithful and you're steady and you just, you serve and you serve and you serve, then then what happens is that people eventually, it may not be immediately, it may be years and years before they turn to you, but they, they remember you and they turn to you and they depend on you. And Daniel now in his 60s is all of a sudden risen to the top again. All of a sudden, he's, he's promoted, and he's expected to give some wisdom inside of this scenario. And here comes this man, older in life, still being used by God. He's in retirement from counseling the kings, but he did not retire from God. This man is still serving. This man is still faithful. And the Bible has many people that get up in years, but God still uses them. Moses is in the last third of his life, 80 to 120, and God uses him the most and uses him to lead the children of Israel. When? When he's 80 to 120. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. When? When she is older. Titus 2 tells us that the aged men and the aged women, that they should be sought out by the younger and that the aged should seek out the younger, that there should be that relationship and there should be the sharpening, there should be the rubbing off, that the older and younger work together. And and for all of you that are up in years, I'm not going to classify it. Daniel was, was 60 
You want to go 70, 80, whatever you want. All of you that are up in years, which is a portion of the room, mark it that you can still be used of God. God's not done with you. God has a plan for you. God still wants to use you, even if you feel like I'm not in my prime. I'm not used as often. I'm not consulted as often. I'm not, I'm not now dependent on as much. That was Daniel. But now Daniel, in a time of crisis, says, we need you. We need your help. We need your wisdom. You talk with God, and we need you to talk to us. A man, Daniel, you find that no matter where he is, he's a teenager in captivity going through Babylonian training. He's a young man consulting Nebuchadnezzar and saying some tough things to Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's up in years talking to Belshazzar. And we'll see next week that Daniel's going to give Belshazzar the business. Like he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna lay the hammer down on Belshazzar. He's going to let him know who's who and what's what. You find that this man, even up in years, is going to stand firm. No matter where he is, what the scenario is, where he's planted, where God has him, he's still faithful and used of God. And I don't, I don't think for a moment that Daniel wanted to be in Babylon. I, I believe with all my heart that Daniel would have loved to go back to Jerusalem. He would have loved to go home. He would have loved to have seen some of his relatives. He would love to see the homeland again. But he's still in captivity. He's still a servant. And he's still serving God. He's still faithful. No matter where he is, no matter where he's planted, he's blooming there. I came across, in closing, I came across a poem this week, short poem, by a guy named John Oxenham who wrote it more than 100 years ago called Your Place. And it's just three stanzas. It's very short. He says this. He says, Is your place small? Tend it with care. He set you there. Is your place a large place? Guard it with care. He set you there. Whate'er your place in life, it is. Not yours alone, but his. He set you there. He says, no matter who you are, or where you are, or what stage of life you are, or you feel like I'm really being utilized or I'm being underutilized. No matter where you are, God puts you there. He knows what's going on around you. He has a plan. He's in control. Whether you're a, a young whippersnapper in the room and you're, you're a teenager here, whether you're old faithful, it doesn't matter. God knows your place. God, God has put you there. Daniel's a great example of just decade after decade after decade, being faithful, being steady, being used by God. And here, after decades of really kind of being put on the shelf, God says, you know what? I'm going to take you back out. I'm going to use you again. We'll find in Daniel chapter 6 that he rises to the top, top, top again inside of another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. And God's not done with him yet. God has a plan for him still. And Daniel is just faithful, serving the Lord, being the spiritual example that he needs to be.